Today we are beginning our Christmas series that we've entitled Majesty in a Manger. And today we're going to be looking at the majesty of Jesus and also learning some things about joy and the joy that God wants us to have, not just at this time of the year, but all year long. So let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift that you have given to us in your son. We thank you, Lord, for the life that we experience because of that gift. And today, as we open up our hearts and our minds to your word, we pray, God, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you might help us to just see this Christmas season in a little bit of a a, a new light, a different light today as we consider your word. And so we ask you these things now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we are 14 days before Christmas. And I think one of the questions that we get asked a lot during this time of the year is, have you got your Christmas shopping done yet? Um, anybody have your Christmas shopping done yet? All right, a few of you. Who hasn't started? All right, I'm in that boat as well, uh, haven't started. Um, but it has gotten a little bit easier now that we can do online shopping, right? You just, you know, go and click and hope it gets, gets here before Christmas. But in the days before there was online shopping... There were two couples down in Florida who decided to go on on a Saturday to the mall to do some Christmas shopping. But on the way there, the two men, they were both older couples, the two men decided that they were going to drop their wives off at the mall and they were going to go sailing. One of the guys owned a sailboat. And so that's exactly what they did. They dropped their wives off at the mall and they said, hey, buy whatever you want for Christmas. We'll, We'll pick you up in a few hours. And so they headed down to the harbor, got on the boat, started out to sea. It was a beautiful day and the wind was really nice and throughout the first hour things were fantastic but then out of nowhere a huge storm erupted it got really windy it started raining the waves started you know building they're hanging on for dear life as they're trying to make it back into the harbor and that's when their boat got hit by a big wave from the side and they got capsized So they're out there on the water, hanging on for dear life. They had to get rescued by the Coast Guard. And when they finally made it into shore and they're drying off, the one man said to his friend, man, that was crazy. And his friend said, yeah, that really was a crazy day. A real close call, but it sure beats shopping at the mall. (laughs) I'm sure some of the men in the room can uh, relate to that sentiment, right? Have you found as you've gotten older that it's harder to Christmas shop or or just really shop for presents for your spouse? Have you found that to be, you know, my wife and I, we experienced that. It used to be a breeze. I mean, I could just buy her something and and she would love it, or at least she pretended to. I don't know. Maybe she really didn't. But now, man, it's gotten so hard. And so my wife will tell me this all the time. Oh, you don't need to get me anything for Christmas. I don't want anything for Christmas. Men, listen to me, okay? I'm going to give you a freebie today. If your wife tells you that she does not need anything for Christmas or want anything for Christmas, she's lying. And if you believe that lie, it's not going to be a Merry Christmas for you, all right? 
if she wakes up on Christmas Day and there's nothing under the tree for her, it's not going to be a Merry Christmas for you. She's going to say, what? You didn't get me anything for Christmas? Right? How many of you have experienced that before? All right. Man. But don't make the mistake that Harvey did. Harvey's wife told her, told him what she wanted for Christmas. She said, I want something that goes from zero to 106 seconds. She was thinking a sports car or a motorcycle. Harvey got her a bathroom scale. Um, So don't make that mistake, all right? (laughs) But one of the things about Christmas is that it's during this time of the year that our focus tends to change, doesn't it? Because if we're honest, 11 months out of the year, our focus is primarily, it's on ourselves. We, we're always thinking about what's going to make me happy and, and, and how am I going to get through my day or my week and how am I going to fulfill my agenda. But during this time of the year, our focus shifts and we literally start thinking about how we can bless others how we can bless those that we love. And there's a certain joy, isn't there, that you experience on Christmas morning when your son or your daughter or your spouse or somebody that you love is opening that gift that you got them. And you can just tell by the look on their face that it's the perfect gift. Doesn't that just fill your heart with a sense of joy to know that in that simple act of giving a gift, you bless somebody that you love? Well, here's the question that I want us to ponder today for a few minutes is, what if we could live with that type of a mindset the other 11 months out of the year? What if we could live with that mindset of, I want to be focused on others and be a blessing to others. I think if we could do that, our lives would be filled with a lot more joy. But is that even possible? To live with that type of focus, I think Paul the Apostle would say, yes it is. Because that's exactly how he instructs us here in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 has been called the Mount Everest of Scripture. And the passage we're going to look at today has been called the peak of the mountain. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Paul writes this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Let's pause there for a minute. The theme of the book of Philippians is joy. In fact, Paul uses the phrase or the words joy and rejoicing 14 times in these four short 
chapters. And the title of our message today is The Personification of Joy. And there's two big ideas that I want us to consider today. Big idea number one is this, that joy comes from growing in our understanding of what Jesus did for us. That's big idea number one. And big idea number two is we can experience joy as we seek to emulate the mindset and the example of Jesus in our relationship with others. So those are the two things that we're going to focus on today. And let's start with number one, that joy comes from growing in our understanding of what Jesus did for us. Now, I mentioned that our theme for our Christmas series this year is majesty in a manger. And that's how Paul begins this. He takes us to that place where, where he wants us to consider the majesty of Jesus. Look at verse five again. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Now, when we hear that word form, we think of the outward form. We think of size and shape, but that's not the word that Paul uses here. The word for form that describes the outward shape and size is the word schema, and the thing about schema as it relates to form is that it's changing all the time, right? Our form is constantly changing. Some of you, your form's going to change today after lunch, right? Last week, I was sharing at Calvary Chapel Petaluma and doing some leadership training with their church there and. We flew in on Saturday, and uh, Pastor Zach picks us up at the uh, airport, and he asks us, he says, hey, are you guys hungry? And we were. So he goes, I, I know this place in town that has the best hamburger I've ever had. And I'm like, okay, I love hamburgers. Let's go for it. So we go. He tells me to order the Chipotle burger, and it was humongous. It was like a quarter pounder stacked with bacon, stacked with onion rings, and I ate the whole thing. It was awesome. But then later that night, we were at his house, and his wife, Kara, made some amazing fish tacos. I had two of those. But then she comes out afterwards with this incredible berry cobbler that she made and vanilla ice cream, and I had some of that too. <laughs> and my schema changed, all right? My form, it grew. Well, that's not the word that Paul uses here when he says being in the form of God. The word he uses is morphe in the Greek. And the word morphe speaks of essence, nature, and character. So when he says who being in the form of God, this is what he's saying is that Jesus was the exact essence, nature, and character of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews gives this amazing insight when he writes in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And I want you to note that. He doesn't say that Jesus was a reflector of God's glory. He says, no, he's the radiance. He's the one who literally radiates the glory of God. And so Paul is saying in using this term, being in the form of God, that Jesus, Jesus possessed the unchangeable essence, nature, character, and glory of God. What Paul is doing is he's taking us into the throne of heaven, 
pre-incarnation, pre-Jesus coming to this earth. And he's telling us this is how Jesus existed as the essence, nature, character, and exact replication or the exact radiance of the glory of God. In fact, I love the way the apostle John describes the pre-incarnate Jesus in his gospel. In the very beginning, in John chapter 1, he writes this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, speaking of Jesus, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is Jesus pre-incarnate. This is Jesus in his glory. He's the one that made the universe. He's the one that spoke the Milky Way galaxy into existence. And did you know there are a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy? And scientists tell us that the Milky Way galaxy is just one of a hundred billion galaxies. And Jesus, he spoke all of that into existence. All of the animals, they tell us that there are 8 million species of animals on planet earth and Jesus spoke them all into existence. There are 10,000 species of birds and 20,000 species of fish and Jesus spoke them all into existence. There are over 800,000 cataloged insects that crawl around on planet earth and Jesus made every single one of them and some of them I want to ask him why right (laughs) why the fire ant you know why why did you make that one John tells us that he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. But then John says this in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's what John's saying. The one who made it all, The one who spoke it all into existence stepped into our world and took on flesh and blood. The morning that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and placed in the manger, it was majesty being placed in that manger. The king had come to his planet. I don't know who said this, but I love this quote. A thousand times in history, a baby has become a king, but only once in history has a king become a baby. And that's what Jesus did. And that's why the wind and the waves, when he could speak to them and say, be still, that they would obey him. They obeyed him because he was their creator. He had authority over all sickness and disease. But get this, the hands that reached out and touched the leper had dirt under their fingernails. Those were fully human hands. The voice that cried out, Lazarus, come forth from the grave, was a fully human voice. 
The tears that were shed as he wept over the city of Jerusalem were human tears. This is what theologians call the theanthropic nature of Christ. Theos means God. Anthropos means man. So theanthropic means fully God and fully man. And that's exactly who Jesus was. The king, the, the majesty, God himself steps out of heaven and comes into our worlds. It was majesty in a manger. So this is the first thing that Paul puts before us in this phrase being in the form of God. But the second thing that Paul speaks of is his emptying. Look at verse 6. He says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, at first glance, that phrase, who being... In the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That, that's like a hard to understand sentence. Because when we think of in our English language robbery, we think of taking something that doesn't belong to you. But that's not what the writer is saying here. In fact, I think the ESV version gets this a, a little bit better when it translates the verse this way. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the word grasp speaks of to seize upon something with force. That's definitely better, but I think the New Living Translation gets it, hits the nail right on the head as they translate that verse this way. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, Jesus being in the form of God did not view his position of being equal with God, the Father, as something that he had to hold on to at all cost. To present this in a way that maybe we can understand a little bit, I want you to imagine a conversation you know, that happened in heaven. It, it didn't, but imagine this conversation that when the idea was presented that Jesus would leave heaven and come down to this earth and he would come lowly as a mere human, Jesus didn't respond, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm not leaving all of this to go down there. Nor did he say, well, if I do go, I'm not going to go down lowly. I mean, they're going to know exactly who I am. I'm going to go down in all my majesty and royalty. No, he didn't say that. Jesus was willing to be empty. Notice how Paul puts it. Verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning. How was he emptied? I want to present to you three ways. Three ways how, how Jesus was emptied. If you're taking notes first, Jesus was emptied of his splendor. He made himself of no reputation. Think about how he came into the world. He doesn't just appear as a 30-year-old man. He doesn't do that. He comes into the world the same way that every other human being has come into the world. He comes into our world as a baby, helpless, defenseless, and totally dependent upon his mother, her breast milk, for his very survival. Think about that. But it goes back even further. Because in order to become a baby, he had to go into the womb. 
So think about that. For nine months, Jesus steps out of glory and steps into the womb. How crazy is that? And when he finally arrives, he's emptied of his splendor. He made himself of no reputation by being born in a barn. Not a fancy hospital. Not a, a, a royal palace. He was born in a barn. Really a cave. That's what the stable was. But think about it. Somebody as Jesus is growing up saying, hey kid, what's wrong with you? Were you born in a barn? He can say, actually I was. <laughs> he comes into this world and, and it, it's not nurses and doctors that are there to welcome him. It's not family and friends. It was the barnyard animals. There was no parade. There was no elaborate celebration. I know what some of you are thinking. There was an angelic choir. And you're right, there was. But think about who their audience was. It wasn't the, you know, who's who of Jerusalem and Israel. It wasn't the, the royal higher-ups or the religious higher-ups. I mean, think about it. It was, it was a group of shepherds. Imagine being in that angelic choir, practicing for centuries for this big moment. Gabriel says, all right, you guys ready? You're on. Pull back the curtain and hit it. They pull back the curtain, and there's your audience, 100 sheep and like 10 shepherds. I think if you're one of those angels, you're thinking, who was in charge of PR? They should be fired. I mean, <laughs> come on. It's like, this is crazy. So he goes from, from, from that, from heaven to that. He was emptied of his splendor in the sense that he made himself of no reputation in that he would spend the first 30 years of his life living in obscurity. Living in a little village that was literally considered to be the slums of Israel. We're talking the other side of the tracks. We're talking Hicksville. The reputation of Nazareth was this. Has anything in, that, that's ever been any good or of anything of any substance ever come out of Nazareth? And it was a, the answer was no. This is where, where Jesus comes. That place in heaven, that place of glory at the right hand of the Father, the place where Paul, taken in a vision, said human words could not describe when I, what I saw when I was taken into that vision in heaven. Jesus steps out of all of that and comes into our world to live in probably the worst place to live in Israel. He made himself of no reputation in his appearance. Isaiah the prophet would say of Jesus, there was nothing about his outward appearance that we would be drawn to him. Remember when Judas was looking to, he was going to deny, you know, they, 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 he was going to deny Jesus, and they asked him, how are we going to know which one he is? Jesus didn't, or Judas didn't say, well, he'll be the best looking one. He'll be the tallest guy in the group. He'll be the guy with the Tony Robbins smile. You know, that, that's who it'll be. He didn't say, you know, he'll be the guy with the glow over his head. No, he says, this is how you'll know. I'll, I'll greet him with a kiss. He's going to be so ordinary that he doesn't stand out, but I'll greet him with a kiss. So first of all, we see that he was emptied of all of his splendor. He made himself of no reputation. 
Second, he was emptied in the sense that his glory was concealed in his humanity. He comes into our world fully God, yet fully man. And the glory that he possessed was hidden inside of his humanity. Now, Peter, James, and John, they get a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. They go up there with Jesus. They fall asleep. Suddenly they wake up and they see Jesus with Moses and Elijah. And Jesus is shining like the sun. The glory that was inside of him in that moment, it was coming out. But most of his life, it was concealed. It was hidden in his humanity. But John would come to realize and understand later. That his glory was really just in the way that he lived. Because John would say, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he was emptied of his splendor. He was emptied in in the, the sense that his glory was concealed in his humanity. Number three, he was emptied of his independent authority. Look at verse seven. It says, in taking the form of a bondservant. A bondservant means a willing servant. You see, in Israel, servant, they, they would serve, a slave would serve for seven years. After seven years, they could go free. But if they really, really loved their master and his family, they could pledge themselves to be a bondservant, and they would be a part of that family forever. And they'd have a special mark that would identify them as a bondservant. And Paul says, being in the form of a bondservant, and, and the word form, it's the same word that he uses you know, prior. It means the same essence and nature and character of a bondservant. In other words, Jesus wasn't pretending. He took on the full essence of being a servant. We could say he was all in. In fact, his mission statement was this. I didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He was fully into it. His mission and mindset was service and sacrifice. He would say in John chapter 5, I do not seek to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He was emptied of his independent authority as his chief was desire was to be about the business of his father. So I want you to picture here what Paul is painting for us. That there, this is where Jesus was in glory, in heaven, equal with the father, but he leaves all of that. And he empties himself of his splendor as he puts on humanity and he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself by allowing his glory to be concealed in his human body. He emptied himself of his independent authority by making himself subject to his father as a bondservant. So think about the significance of the moment On that first Christmas morning when Jesus was born. God the Son leaving heaven and all of its glory. And coming here and arriving in our world knowing full well that there he is worshipped. Here he'll be ridiculed. There he's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Here he'll be known as the carpenter's son. There he's known as mighty God. Here he'll be known as an illegitimate child born to a woman who was not yet married. 
There he dwelt in perfection. Here he will dwell in a world that's marked by imperfection. There he's loved and adored by all. Here he'll be hated and scorned by many. There he's the ruling one holding a scepter. Here he's the little one holding a piece of straw in his little baby fist. You know, the Christmas carol... What Child Is This was wrote, written by William Chatterton, Chatterton Disc. And it was born out of a poem that he wrote called The Manger Throne. Here's a couple lines of it. Never fell melodies half so sweet as those which are filling the skies. And never a palace shone half so fair as the manger bed where our Savior lies. Now a new power has come on the earth, a match for the armies of hell. A child is born who shall conquer the foe and all the spirits of wickedness quell. For Mary's son is the mighty one whom the prophets of God foretell. What child is this? That Christmas carol was born out of this poem. And in the Christmas carol, it depicts the the shepherds asking the question, what child is this? But it wasn't in ignorance because the angels had already told them who the child was going to be. So it's in amazement that they're asking the question, what child is this? There's, There's never been a child like this. And you see, the Jewish people expected a reigning king, not a wailing child. The Jewish people longed for one who would conquer, not one who would need swaddling. Yes, that, but this is the very way that God chose to send his son into our world. It was Christmas Eve day. And a husband named Bill and his wife Nancy, their two-year-old son, were traveling to some relative's house to spend Christmas. They decided to stop at a diner along the way. And as they're sitting there eating, their son Eric becomes enamored with this guy who was sitting at the counter. And this man who looked homeless was making faces at his son. He sat there in his tattered clothes, ragged coat that was greasy and worn, His hair was unwashed and uncombed. His face was unshaven and his hands were dirty looking. He looked like he barely had, or he hadn't bathed in weeks and he was barely sober. And as Bill and his family were trying to eat, this man was making little faces at Eric and Eric was loving every single minute of it. Nancy tried to distract Eric with some food and by turning his uh, high chair, but it was to no avail because the man had baited little Eric into a friendly game of peekaboo. Well, Eric and this, this old man, they were making, making quite a nuisance in the diner when Bill finally said, Hun, I think we should leave. You take Eric outside, I'll pay the bill. And so Nancy takes her son and she begins to walk out knowing she's going to have to pass right by the man. She silently prays to herself, Lord, don't let him speak to me or to Eric. But right when she gets to where the man was sitting, she said their eyes met. And she said his eyes were imploring. And then he asked the question, ma'am, can I hold your baby? 
Well, she didn't even get a chance to answer because Eric propelled himself out of the, her arms and into the arms of this man and put his shoulder or his head gently on the man's shoulder. And the man, as tears began to stream down his face, gently caressed Eric's back. And then the man looked at Nancy and said, you take care of this boy. And Nancy said, I will. And then as the man pried Eric from his chest and handed him back to Nancy, his mother, he said, thank you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas present. Now, I love that story because I think all of us who have had kids or have grandkids would know how uncomfortable it would be for our son or daughter or grandchild to suddenly, you know, launch himself into the hands of this, you know, man who is dirty and grimy and barely sober. But now I want you to think about what God did for us as he freely gave his son a little baby to mankind. And we didn't cradle his son. We didn't caress his son. No, mankind rejected his son and killed his son. Yet God knew that's exactly what we would do. And God knew that that was the only way that man would be able to be restored and have a chance to experience his forgiveness. That a sinless person had to pay for the sins of sinful humanity. I love the way that John puts it when he writes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And then he adds, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He could have. But he didn't send him to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. So God in his love gave his son willingly and freely. And through the gift of his son, God was able to offer all of us another gift. And that's the gift of everlasting life, eternal life to anyone who would believe. And Jesus willingly and freely came knowing what would take place. He was all in on the mission. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I want you to note that. He humbled himself. Herod didn't humble Jesus. Pilate didn't humble Jesus. The Roman soldiers didn't humble Jesus. Jesus humbled himself. He was the most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth. And here's the question that I want us to consider today is why? Why did he do all of that? And that's where this study comes to a head. And this is where we see this connection to this theme of joy. Because again, the writer of Hebrews so elegantly puts this when he's comparing the Christian life to that of running a race. And he says this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, here's the key phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch that phrase? Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? 
That joy was hearing his father say, well done. Mission accomplished. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. It was a victory cry. He was saying, mission accomplished. The debt of redemption has been paid in full. It's done. And he enters into heaven and the father says, well done, my son. Notice how how Paul puts it in verse 9. Therefore, he says, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I love this insight from Pastor John Piper, he said this, the greatest labor of love that ever happened was possible because Jesus pursued the greatest imaginable joy, namely the joy of being exalted to God's right hand in the assembly of a redeemed people. What was the joy that was set before him? Hearing the Father say, well done. It was assuming his rightful place at the right hand of God. But I ask you this question. What else was involved in the joy that was set before him? I think it was this. It was the reality of knowing that his sacrifice was going to result in sinners being saved. That his sacrifice was going to result in those who were far from God being brought near to God. Those who were strangers being brought into the family. And for that, it would be worship. It'd be worth it. That was the joy. The joy that was set before him was you and I in the presence of God. And listen, church. As we meditate upon and focus on what Jesus did for us, I think the more our hearts are filled with a sense of joy. Because of what Jesus did, we belong to God. And that's all that really matters, isn't it? What's going on in our world, in the big scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. What's going on in our own lives, the trials, the difficulties, and I'm not trying to make light of them, but in in light of the big picture, that's, that's not what really matters. What really matters is that you belong to God. What really matters is that you and I, we were on our way to hell, and now we are on our way to heaven. Can I get an amen to that? We have something to sing about. But there's one more aspect of this joy that we need to consider today. How does this become a lifestyle of joy? How can you and I live in this personification of joy? Well, it's found in Paul's instruction in verse 5 when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? Well, look back at verse 1. He tells us. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. What mind is he talking about? He's talking about the mindset of Jesus. And then he says this, and let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. He's talking there about humility. 
choosing to humble ourselves the way that Jesus did. How? Notice how he continues. Let each esteem others. The word there, esteem, is value. Let each of us value others as better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interest of others. Guys, this is what Jesus did for us. Don't miss this. Jesus saw our need and chose that over his own comfort and over his own position in heaven. Jesus saw our need of salvation before his own comfort. He valued us. And Paul is saying, you want to live a life that's full of joy? Humble yourself and do what Jesus did and start with the people who are closest to you. Live your life with their best interest at heart. You know, there's an acronym for the word joy. You've heard it. The J stands for Jesus, the O stands for others, the Y stands for you. It's joy. It's a beautiful way to live. That's what he's saying here. Now, you, you reverse that, and you get yaj. And <laughs> that, doesn't make any sense. that doesn't make any sense at all, right? But a lot of us are trying to live our lives yaj, you know, and it doesn't make any sense. There's no joy or fulfillment in that. And so precious church, I want to encourage you, Jesus left everything for you. He endured it all for you. And a big part of his joy that helped him endure was you and I being a part of his family. And if you are not yet a part of the family of God, Jesus invites you today to open up your heart, but put your faith in him and allow him to receive you into his family. You see, when we realize who this child really is, you can know that the answers to life's toughest questions are true. And these are the questions. Is God real? Absolutely. And does he love me? Yes. More than you can ever know. And he wants us to be a part of his family. And for all of us who are a part of his family, can I encourage you today, run your race with this reality that you are greatly loved by God. And the Bible tells us that God has actually poured his love into our lives by his Holy Spirit. And he has poured his love into our lives so that he might pour his love out of our lives to a broken world that he loves so desperately. And that, my friends, is the joyful life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for what you did in sending your son Jesus to come and give us life and give us hope, to rescue us from our sin and our shame and our guilt. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us a reason to rejoice. And Lord, we want to do that right now. I think it would only be appropriate for us to end this service by just lifting up our voices, our hearts, our hands in worship to Jesus for what he has done. That the joy that is a result of that would just fill our hearts afresh right now as we sing and rejoice. If you need prayer today, there's people up front here that would love to pray with you. 
If you're here today, you want to open up your heart to Jesus, just tell him, Lord, I'm a sinner. I want you to save me. I want you to be my king. And he'll meet you in this moment. If you want prayer, these folks would love to pray with you. But church, let's lift up and sing with a joyful noise.